A system nearly equivalent was that of the ranging companies adopted by the Texas Republic. These were so many organized tribes of civilized white Indians living in moving camps beyond the border, always ready for the chase of the redskin at or without a moment's notice. Their wildlife and exciting combats were as romantic and attractive to adventurous young men as any crusade of old. And on their rolls may be read the names of many men who would never be suspected now of rampant blood and deviltry. From many road talks, from Germans who had ranged in their ranks, and from our companion, we collected some notes of their characteristics. Once, while in Mexico, one of the ranging regiments was in so sorry a plight that an order was given from headquarters for supplying it with clothing. A suit of dragoon's uniform was served out for each man, but disliking the appearance of the uniform, they sold or gambled all the way, only the officers keeping their new rig. Dissatisfied at the novel plumage of their officers, the rangers managed to steal every suit and returned it with the gold lace and ornaments blackened. Men and officers of the rangers were on terms of perfect equality, calling each other by their Christian or nicknames. Their time, when not in actual service, was spent in hunting, riding, and playing cards. The only duty was for four out of seventy to stand guard. Men were often absent, without leave, three or four days without being reprimanded. They fought when engaged, quite independently, the only order from the commander usually being, Already, boys? Go ahead. Their principal occupation had always been Indian fighting, but two or three regiments of them were employed during the Mexican War with great advantage, mainly as scouts, pioneers, and foragers. At Monterey, they stormed a battery on foot, leaving their horses and rifles, and fighting only with the bowie knife and the colt. After the city was taken, they were prepared to enjoy themselves, but when they had caused much annoyance by their riot, a few regiments of volunteers were ordered to clear the town of the Texas Rangers. The commanding officer of one of the regiments, after their arrival on the Rio Grande early in the Mexican War, called his men together and addressed them as follows. I've got an order, boys, to parade the regiment tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock to be reviewed by General Zachary Taylor. I don't know what the devil we ought to do about it, but I reckon we'd better all draw up in line, and when he comes, give him three cheers. Accordingly, when the general appeared, the order was given, three cheers for General Taylor. The cheers were given, every man waving his hat, after which he tossed it into the air, or sent it scaling over the general's head, and, drawing his revolver, fired five rounds in a random few de fois, whooping, hallowing, and yelling, and making whatever independent demonstrations of respect and welcome he saw fit. And that is from A Journey Through Texas or a Saddle Trip Across the Southwestern Frontier by Frederick Law Olmsted. 1857. I'm Joshua Trevino, and this is The Hard Country. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hard Country Podcast. My name is Melissa Ford. I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I am joined, as always, by Joshua Trevino, our chief of intelligence and research. Hello, Josh, and thank you for reading that passage. And thank you for making the effort to join us remotely today. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start by asking you why you picked that passage. I love the I love the uh, any any historical anecdote demonstrating the ungovernability of the Texans is always appropriate. You know, right now, of course, we have this unfolding crisis at the border, this uh, this conflict uh, between uh, Texas asserting its lawful sovereignty 
and the federal government asserting its unlawful prerogatives uh, vis-a-vis Texas and the border. And, uh, you know, you have to remember that the roots of this go way, way back. It's not just something that came to the fore in the current administration or even in the current century. The inability of the center to govern the states uh, fully, to rule the states really is what we're talking about, is a feature, not a bug of American history. Uh, It's the reason we're supposed to have a federalist system. And when you look at the cultural background of the Texans in particular, the synthesis of the cultures from which the Texans come, Mexican, Spanish, uh, Scots-Irish, and so on, Indian, uh, you have a people who are not easily ruled. Uh, And uh, so what you saw here in this particular anecdote, both in terms of the unwillingness of the Texas Rangers that uh, Frederick Law Olmsted saw um, uh, to submit to what would be otherwise ordinary decorum, dress, military propriety, and so on, uh, and, and their inability to even really fully comprehend or understand what a normal uh, gesture of military respect would be, not merely giving three cheers for General Taylor, but actually shooting at him uh, uh, in a friendly fashion. Uh, really, really, I think, uh, shows just how, just how far back this quality of Texas and the Texans go. It's all the way at the beginning. And so when we see what's unfolding now with Texas you know, uh, insisting on its rights, its legitimate rights, uh, and refusing to submit easily to uh, the convention all the way from Washington, D.C. and the East Coast, you're seeing something that has repeated itself over and over across time. And I would say there's a direct line from the spirit of those Texas Rangers, uh, the ones who actually had to be cleared out of Monterey after conquering it uh, in 1846, 1847. Uh, and, uh, you know, frankly, the spirit of of, of Texas now. If, if, if For those of you who uh, are on X, which used to be Twitter, uh, which I don't recommend for the sake of your health, but if you are, go look at the Texas Military Department's uh, Twitter feed right now. It's, it's what we call it now, an X feed. Uh, but go look at it. Uh, uh, this morning, uh, the Texas Military Department uh, had a very interesting image up of the flagpole at its own administrative building, which has a Texas flag flying and underneath it, the Gonzalez flag, which as every Texan knows, has the cannon and the words, come and take it. Uh, that's a message. Uh, and it's one that has my endorsement. And I think the endorsement of this foundation too. Love that. Thank you, Josh. That puts the come and take it in a whole new light for me. So that's awesome. I love the thought that Texas has always been ungovernable. And then, I mean, we see how it's still ungover- uh, ungovernable now, just like you said. And that makes sense that that's why the federal government is still so unhappy. So thank you for all that background, Josh. It's fascinating. I know we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, We have been talking a lot, not just in the office, but we talked about it all of last episode about Texas's fight. Uh, It's constant fight with DC, right? So Mm -hmm. I thought that today we, I know we will continue to probably later in this episode as well, but I thought today we could start Mm -hmm. by talking a little bit about, about Mexico. Um, So first, I know we wanted to start by uh, discussing this new article by ProPublica. Yeah. I have it right here. 
But um, the article is about how drug traffickers have funneled millions of dollars to Mexican President Lopez Obrador's first campaign. So this would have been uh, in 2006, so years before he was elected president in 2018. And um, so according to this article, just to sum it up a little bit, it, it appears that the DEA has uncovered what they believe is like substantial evidence that major cocaine traffickers uh, had funneled some $2 million into his first presidential campaign, like I said, in 2006. So the DA even spoke to witnesses who said that the money was provided in return for a promise that the future administration of uh, Lopez Obrador's government would tolerate or allow the cartel's operations. Uh, Fast forward, he now has his uh, hugs, not bullets, policy towards the drug cartels uh but a little bit more about this investigation it's very long i'll link the article but i think it's at least like 20 pages once you print it out but um long one according to this there's evidence uh, and tapes showing that amlo's cartel operatives and aides were negotiating with the criminals and it's a little bit unclear you know the article says it's a little bit unclear whether amlo knew about it um, but regardless, like there is evidence that his closest aides agreed to this arrangement. And this alone, I think, should be enough to make people pause, right? Many people have long been very skeptical of AMLO's intentions. Us, we're probably the first ones. But uh, there's still a lot of lawmakers and a lot of people that are either blind to it or choose to be blind to it, even though we've seen how... AMLO avoiding confrontation with the drug cartels has allowed them to extend their influence across Mexico into the United States and has led to like historic levels of violence. So could you talk a little bit about what you saw in the article or what you think of it? Oh my gosh. I mean, I mean, first of all, it is a phenomenal article and I have to, uh, I don't know, uh, this is probably a function of my ignorance of a lot of the media landscape. Uh, I don't know who this journalist is. Tim Golden uh, is the author, but he did a great job. So Tim Golden, if you're out there, good work uh, on this. The title of the article, it's, uh, I've got got my own printout here, uh, ProPublica, ProPublica, sorry, it's not a Spanish, ProPublica. uh, uh, It's ProPublica. The title of the article is, Did Drug Traffickers Funnel Millions of Dollars to Mexican President Lopez Obrador's First Campaign? But the title is actually uh, somewhat misleading um, uh, in, because because actually what the article is about is the continuing relationship between Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, current president of Mexico, and the Sinaloa cartel. It's an absolutely incredible piece. By the way, uh, you know, it's as, as I was reading this, um, I was thinking of Betteridge's Law of Headlines. Is this? Are, are you familiar with this one, Melissa? Betteridge's Law of Headlines. Uh, is that a that a familiar one? Betteridge's law of headlines says that uh, that any headline that ends in a question mark can be answered with the word no, uh, and so it's almost always true. But actually, this one breaks Betteridge's law of headlines because the answer is absolutely yes. Drug cartels did, in fact, invest in Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's 2006 campaign, his 2012 campaign, and probably his 2018 campaign as well. And we have seen this. We have talked about it over and over and over here on The Hard Country, in our publications and work and research uh, at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And we have been saying as much as we can to anybody who will listen, Capitol Hill, on media, here in Texas, that the current Mexican regime, I want to be very explicit about this, 
under the Morenistas, under Andres Manuel López Obrador, is a narco-affiliated cartel synthesis regime that absolutely works hand-in-glove with Mexico's own criminal cartels. And this story that ProPublica has published, not the outlet that I expected to break it, is incredibly strong evidence to that end. And everybody needs to read it because everybody has to understand that our neighbor to the South is not a friendly regime. And I say this again, as I've said over and over in speeches, in hard country episodes, that I am a pro-Mexican person. I'm proud to have Mexican heritage. I like Mexico and the Mexicans. But the regime that controls Mexico right now is a criminal narco regime. And we have to be a thousand percent clear about this. This story has to be read. I will read brief passages from it uh, because it really exposes, I think, both the nature of the state cartel synthesis in Mexico and also the perennial American failure to do anything about it. Uh, you, you know, let's let's uh, let me let me turn to one of the passages here. Um, uh, so, so, so essentially, what we've what we've got is uh, this incredibly it's 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 complicated, but at the same time straightforward uh, story of 2006. Uh, uh, Amlo is running for it at, at this time. He's he's uh, is basically alcalde de Mexico City, so he's a uh, he's he's effectively the mayor of Mexico City. What at that time was the federal district, um, DFA. And he's running for president, and there is a uh, th there's a meeting. I'll read you a short, um, uh, just a short passage uh, from this. And so the meeting is between um, Lopez Obrador's uh, basically campaign de facto chief of staff and uh, some of the Sinaloa cartel uh, higher ups. And by the way, the Sinaloa cartel itself is is a cartel of cartels. So there's a network and hierarchy. Um, there's a January 2006 meeting at a hotel on the Pacific Coast Resort of uh, Nuevo Vallarta. Uh, the man who arranged the meeting was Francisco Leon Garcia, the 38-year-old son of a mining entrepreneur from the northern state of Durango, known as Pancho Leon. He was launching his candidacy for the Mexican Senate as a representative of Lopez Obrador's leftist alliance. This is what becomes Morena. He was friendly with one of La Barbie's lieutenants. So La Barbie is, is effectively a warlord within the Sinaloa cartel. Sergio Villarreal Barragan a towering former state police officer known as El Grande, and the two men thought they might be able to help each other. Another businessman joined Leon at the meeting. The two said that they were there with Lopez Obrador's knowledge and support. Lopez Najera, this is the source, recounted. And by the way, this has been heavily validated. You have to read the story. In return for an injection of cartel cash into the Lopez Obrador campaign, Leon said, the campaign promised that a future Lopez Obrador government would select law enforcement officials helpful to the traffickers. More importantly, the traffickers were also told that Lopez Obrador would not name an attorney general whom they viewed as hostile to their interests, seemingly granting them a veto over the appointment. This is absolutely explosive. Uh, and, you know, it's something that has been in plain sight for years. Back in, I believe it was 2021, uh, uh, I actually, I published a piece, uh, which we should link uh, in the show description, talking about uh, the kind of the open secret of the Sinaloa elections that year, which was that, which was that the Sinaloa cartel had actually come out and uh, used their muscle to sway the state elections in that state for the Moreno regime. And everybody knew from public statements, from everything else, that, uh, that, the, that the Lopez Obrador uh, regime was hand in glove uh, with the with 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 
the scene alone. But nobody could report on it because, of course, there was a there's a price tag to be paid. I mean, you could be killed actually by the by the cartel. There's an interesting detail in here, by the way. You know, talking about that kind of election interference. Apparently, in 2006. Uh, uh, and again, you should absolutely read the story. In 2006, the um, uh, the 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 traffickers and the Sinaloans, when it when it emerged that Lopez Obrador was going to lose, and he lost by a very very small margin, he alleged that it was stolen from him. Uh, in Canada, probably wasn't. Uh, there was uh, there was uh, that was actually relatively probably one of Mexico's last clean presidential elections, unfortunately. Uh, uh, especially since Lopez Obrador has since dismantled uh, the electoral uh, institute there. But uh, but uh, uh, in 2006, uh, apparently, uh, you know, honestly, this should be a headline of its own. Uh, the Sinaloan cartel, when it emerged, Lopez Obrador was going to was going to lose the election, which meant that their investment of millions in his campaign was going to go for naught. Uh, they um, they formed uh, essentially a task force to storm the electoral tribunal and take hostages uh, until he was declared the winner. They were going to mount a coup d'état, a national level coup d'état in Mexico City. And according to this article, the the only reason that the effort failed was because when they proceeded to the location, they found that it was guarded by Sedena, by the army, uh, uh, who weren't going to let them in. Um, so, but just imagine that. Imagine if in in two thousand six, I mean, how different Mexican history and U.S. Uh, you know Mexico relations would be if in two thousand six the Sinaloa cartel had actually succeeded in its effort to mount a coup d'état in Mexico at the national level. Absolutely unthinkable. So they tried again in 2012, and you know, you know, here's what's interesting about this is that is that as you as you read the story, uh, you come to find that you know things that like what you and I have seen and other observers have seen just from 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 OSINT, right, from open source intelligence, from casual conversations with individuals who know what's going on. What we've seen has been known to American officialdom for. 10, 15 years. It's been a long time. Everybody has known, apparently, that Andres Manuel López Obrador is in league with narcotraficantes, with organized crime, and so on. Uh, uh, and so the, the question arises, why didn't we do anything about it? Well, here's the incredibly disappointing part. Uh, let me read another passage. Uh, so 2006 comes and goes. 2011 comes around. Uh, uh, López Obrador is running again. And uh, individuals in the Drug Enforcement Administration in the United States decide that, uh, you know, here's a chance to basically entrap the guy. Like they can they can uh, raise a similar scheme that was advanced in 2006, uh, and then they can, they can actually get him. So let me read this. In late 2011, DEA agents proposed a sting in which they would offer $5 million in supposed drug money to operatives working on Lopez Obrador's second presidential campaign. However... Obama administration Justice Department officials closed the investigation in part over concerns that even a successful prosecution would be viewed by Mexicans as egregious American meddling in their politics. Now we have to ask. I you read that. I was going to ask you that. I was going to read you that quote next. Oh, you were. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I, I asked the question you wanted to ask them about it because uh, it's I think it's just, it's it's mind blowing. Please ask your question. Well, I wanted to read it and get your reaction just because it's it's very unfortunate that so many people, you know, think that it's not the United States' right. job to root out corruption in Mexico. I can understand why they would think that, but what we've always been saying, you and me on the show, and what we've always been saying at TPPF through our research, through a lot of the, the work that we've done, is that you need to be willing to hold the officials that are protecting cartels accountable. We have a paper called this, you know, the hold them accountable paper that we have. 
Right. But you need to be willing to hold these people accountable that are protecting the cartels and the drug traffickers, because if you don't, then what good are any efforts to fight organized crime and strengthen the rule of law? They're no good. And that's something that we've been saying for a very long time, which I think a lot of people still don't understand. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yes. And and let me, uh, so full concur with everything you said, let me add, uh, l- let me add to it, uh, however, uh, we don't do it out of hubris, right? Like we don't do mm-hmm. it. Uh, you know, you know, we don't we don't go after Mexican corruption because we because we feel like we have a mission to improve Mexico. That's that that's the job of Mexicans, um, uh, and 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 actually, there are plenty of Mexicans who want to do it. Uh, and so, you know, we should be we should offer neighborly support to them in the spirit of John John Quincy Adams. But uh, uh, we, we do it because it is in our interest to do so. We do it because uh, because we know that having a uh, narco cartel affiliated state on a southern border is contrary to the well-being, prosperity, safety, and security of American communities. And this is what's 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 absolutely frustrating about this entire policy sphere. You know, for anybody who's worked in it, you know, certainly from our perspective, and you know what I've seen over the past decade, that time and time and time again, you'll talk to people, including conservatives. By the way, this is not a partisan issue. You know, conservative Republicans who are probably more closely aligned ideologically and programmatically with us than anybody uh, in the political sphere, will also voice the same concerns that you heard in the story from Obama administration officials, which is that we can't do it, the Mexicans wouldn't like it. Well, uh, you know, for the sake of argument, let's say that's true. Let's say that the Mexicans don't like it, you know, and we're not in the business of insulting them. You know, we don't want to, uh, you know, cause harm for the sake of it. But we have to ask ourselves and go back to first principles, what is American governance for? Who is American governance for? If you have a policy that, or an opportunity to arrest, prosecute, and possibly jail a man who is going to control a country bordering the United States, who is in league with the Sinaloan drug cartel, and you don't do that because you're concerned about the other country's feelings, then in my opinion, you've lost sight of the stewardship that is properly your role as an officer of the United States, which should be to vigorously defend the interests of the United States. And uh, good relations with Mexico are important, uh, but there's not really an argument to be made, certainly not in light of empirical outcomes of the past 10 years, that sensitivity to Mexican civic feelings has resulted in superior outcomes for the United States. Can I read another passage from this, Melissa? Yes, please. Uh, if, if you're tired of me reading passages from it, I mean, it's just such a, it's such a chock-full article. Um, so, 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 so fast forward to December 2018. Uh, Lopez Obrador becomes president of Mexico, you know, third time's the charm. He becomes president, he's in office, and when he becomes president, there's this whole cohort of individuals in the Drug Enforcement Administration and the U.S. Department of Justice who know exactly who he is. They know, they know, they know that he helms a machine uh, that that uh, is in league with drug cartels. But hope springs eternal. Let me read you this. Before Lopez Obrador took office in December 2018, U.S. officials began to review information from the DEA investigation as part of their effort to assess the new president's willingness to work with them against the mafias. But the new Mexican leader soon answered that question himself. First, Lopez Obrador sidelined the Mexican commando teams that had been the most trusted partner of U.S. law enforcement and intelligence agencies. He then shut down a federal police unit that the DEA had trained and vetted to work with the Americans on big drug cases. When DEA agents arrested a former Mexican defense minister, General Salvador Cienfuegos Cepeda, you and I have talked about this, 
On drug corruption charges in October 2020, Lopez Obrador turned on the Americans even more forcefully. With the military high command pressing the president to act in Cienfuegos' defense, Mexican officials under Lopez Obrador made clear that cooperation itself was at risk. Lopez Obrador then declared the U.S.-Mexico mayor the accord dead and pushed through strict new limits on how U.S. agents could operate inside Mexico. It simply isn't tenable to assert at this point that we have a partner in the Mexican regime. We have partners in Mexico, again, you know, Mexicans who want to do the right thing, not for us, but for themselves, by their country. You know, we, we call that patriotism. Uh, but uh, from a classical sense, would I describe the current president of Mexico as a patriot for his own country? Absolutely not. Um, uh, we, on the U.S. side, on the Texas side, need to be very, very clear-eyed about this. And I think to bring it full circle, Melissa, this goes back into the current standoff between Washington, D.C. and Austin, Texas right now, between, between Governor Abbott and President Biden. President Biden uh, has described the same guy, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, as the best partner he could possibly have. Has, uh, has, has positively endorsed him and cooperation with him and a partnership with him specifically because he, uh, like his predecessors, uh, particularly in the Obama administration, fails to perceive any interest but his own, doesn't act as a steward of the American national interest, certainly not the Texan interest. He has no interest in that at all. Um, uh, but what he's interested in is Lopez Obrador controlling the cartels, which demonstrably he does in many ways, to um, uh, keep the border quiet until he can get reelected in November 2024. And that's that's this this incredibly malign and malevolent synthesis uh, that, that exists not just between the Mexican regime and its own cartels, but between Washington, D.C. and the White House and the Mexican regime and the cartels. We have to understand that there is a loose web connecting them at this point, and Texas standing against it uh, is, is honestly... Uh, one of the only things, I don't think this is hyperbole at this point, one of the only things protecting America at large from the predations of this uh, this this coalescing of antagonists to, to the American way of life and to American communities. Let me add one other thing, uh, if I may, uh, as long as I'm filibustering on Zoom. Uh, you, you know, we talked at the outset of the show about the ungovernability of Texas, uh, but we need to be we need to be very clear. On what we mean by that, uh, you know, we embrace the ungovernability. What we really mean by that is that Texans will not be ruled by any except the law, and the law fundamentally is about the preservation of oneself, one's community, one's way of life, uh, and that's the that's the higher law, the law which the Constitution, as the fulfillment of the Declaration, was enacted to preserve. This is the Lincolnian understanding uh, of the Constitution. Um, and if all others have lost it, at least Texas still has it. Uh, and I hope that this ProPublica article, again, thank you, Tim Golden, for writing this, um, uh, at least is some sort of spur to public awareness that uh, of, of the of the gravity of the situation. Yeah, this is truly an incredible article. And before we move on to other topics, just to, like you said, bring this full circle, I want to play devil's advocate a little bit because I've actually met people 
that feel a lot of sympathy for their leaders or even to the point where they don't really blame their leaders for engaging in corruption just because corruption is something that is so like deeply rooted and deeply embedded in the fabric of Mexico, right? I mean, a lot of the time in Mexico, everyone gives or takes bribes and that includes politicians, that includes military, that includes police. And I think that the higher up you go, the more pressure there is. So there's people that feel sympathy for maybe politicians whose families' lives are being threatened. What would you say yeah. of that kind of mentality? You know, the, um, the, the there's actually, so there's another quote in the article. Uh, I promise this is the last time I'll quote the article on the show. Uh, but but this is this is a quote from a fellow named uh, Raymond Donovan, who is uh, was the DEA operations chief, recently retired. He says, this is his quote, Corruption is so much a part of the fabric of drug trafficking in Mexico, there's no way you can pursue the drug traffickers without going after the politicians and the military and police officials who support them. So, um, you, you know, to your point, uh, I actually do have, uh, and I think, I think anybody of goodwill can have a lot of sympathy uh, and empathy for a, you know, uh, let's take a hypothetical that's not much of a hypothetical, a local police officer who participates in corruption because he knows that if he doesn't, um, his family will be killed. This happens. This happens more often than not. So, so at the Culiacanazo in October 2019, mm -hmm. uh, when the Sinaloa uh, cartel came out and you know, actually fought Sedena uh, in in Culiacan, uh, which is the capital of Sinaloa, the uh, the uh, one of the reasons, one of the reasons. I mean, there were a couple of reasons. One of the reasons that um, that the that Sedena lost the battle, and by the way, they would have won the infantry fight, but but uh, but actually, President Lopez Obrador ordered them to retreat and release their prisoner. One of the reasons they lost was that uh, even as even as the cartel men uh, were going up against the the the, the Sedena and the um, Guardia Nacional uh, infantry uh, in in the city, which is a crazy sentence to say. Uh, there were apparently, I've been told this secondhand, uh, but I think it's credible. Apparently, um, uh, some of the cartel men went after the uh, like the barracks of the complex where the families of a lot of these soldiers lived. Uh, and so the implicit threat was that was that if you're going to fight us, if you're going to fight us in Culiacan, we're going to kill your families there. And uh, and, and, and and look, you know, if, if anybody if anybody were to do that, uh, I, mean, I mean, God forbid to uh, you know that that, that that that's the point of vulnerability for everyone. I don't think you can gainsay somebody who, out of you know a desire to stay alive or a desire to preserve the lives and welfare of his wife and children and so on, loved ones, um, uh, can do those things. We don't sit in judgment in that case. I want to be clear. But, uh, and this this is why you and I and our colleagues at the Texas Public Policy Foundation have had a very explicit focus on elites. Elites mm -hmm. don't always have to make those choices. It is maybe not a positive decision to be made for somebody at a low level uh, who is forced into a system not of his making that he is powerless to break. But when we are at the level of, take your pick, a state governor, a president of Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, a wealthy billionaire, and so on, and you know, the, these people exist and they participate. Um, uh, you, know, you know, Hank Hank Gonzalez, uh, the late Hank Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. These people have choices. These people have choices, and they have made them. And moreover, they set the tone because of the vertical hierarchy and structure that characterizes so much of Mexican society. Um, uh, they they bear quite a bit of responsibility and should be held to account for it, uh, which is why we support things like the Engel list, like elite accountability, like, um, you know, going after um, uh, people, people like AMLO.
uh, which should have happened apparently 10, 15 years ago. So, so, so yeah, I think, I think that's true. And I think, uh, I think it is possible to have an ineffective approach that focuses on small time stuff. Um, uh, but this isn't, you know, this isn't New York in the nineties. Uh, you know, what's, what's called for is not really the broken window, uh, theory, which, which, by the way, I endorse in terms of us side crime fighting, which is a qualitatively different thing. Uh, this is something where you have to go, uh, for the big fish, um, not the kingpins that's different, but the big fish to, uh, Raymond Donovan's point in politics, in business, uh, in the true national elites. And that's where I think you can start to compel some change. For yeah. our interest. The elites. I'll make sure to link our paper on that so that our listeners can can read it. Um, so thank you, Josh. I think that's a very important po point to make. Uh, next, you. I think we should shift back to this side of the border for the rest of the podcast, Josh. But uh, we've have, we have some breaking news. Um, a House panel has approved uh, impeachment charges against uh, the, the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas uh, yeah. over his handling of the border. So this was an 18 to 15 party line vote, and the panel endorsed um, basically this resolution charging him with refusing to uphold the law and with breaching the public trust by failing to choke off a surge of migrants across the U.S. border with Mexico. Right. So this is going to set the stage for a House vote maybe as soon as next week on an impeachment. Um, so, Josh, I know that we've talked about uh, Secretary May Mayorkas on this podcast before. We've criticized him a couple of times, but we haven't really discussed a possible impeachment. So I'm curious to ask you here for the first time, what what do you think about these new developments? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I will and won't comment on here. Uh, what I'm not going to comment on is is uh, in 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 Congress process matters. I think I'll put it that way. Uh, you know, it's, it's not that I don't have opinions on it, but I'm going to set those aside for now. Uh, uh, let's talk about the substance of, of it, though. I mean, I mean Mayorkas, uh, Secretary Mayorkas, has been impeached for two major charges, and you know, I've got the, I've got the uh, kind of the the um, the articles here, and it's and it's long, but it, re it really resolves the two. It's willful and uh, willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law, and then the other one is is breach of public trust. And uh, look, I mean, on the face of it, he's guilty of both. Um, that being said, the, the whole administration is guilty of both. So I think, I think, I think the question uh, before before the House, and you know, if there's um, uh, uh, if there's a Senate trial, uh, then, then, um, well, let me pause there. I have to acknowledge some constitutional ignorance on this point. Uh, I don't recall if there is a Senate trial for, um, for cabinet officials. Is there, I think there is. Do you know? I actually don't know. This is, this is profoundly embarrassing. Now, now in our defense, this has happened exactly one time in the preceding 250 years of American history. Uh, so, so you have to excuse us, but I believe I, I, I believe there is. So let's stipulate that there is. Mm -hmm. But even if there isn't, uh, you, know, you know, I think the question of fact is is pretty clear um, that he hasn't he hasn't done his job and that he's that he's yeah. incompetent. Uh, Ken Buck uh, out of Colorado uh, is, uh, has has expressed. Uh, there's a New York Times piece on this. Um, the New York Times, by the way, has this uh, incredibly hilarious. Uh, just distorted reporting on everything regarding uh, re regarding the border. It's 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 truly amazing. So this is by a, um, a reporter named uh, Karun uh, uh, Demergian, and uh, she writes: uh, the GOP has plowed forward without producing evidence that Mr. Mayorkas committed a crime or acts of corruption. 
instead arguing that the Biden administration border policies he implemented ran afoul of the law. Uh, so so, so let, let, let's get this clear. According to the New York Times, uh, he didn't break the law. He just ran afoul of it, uh, which is which is an incredibly fine distinction that means absolutely nothing. So honestly, it's almost an admission of guilt if that's the if that's the um, the, the line that they want to take. Uh, it, it, it's obvious he's incompetent. Ken Buck uh, went on record with the Times to say, this is his quote, to say that someone was incompetent, we wouldn't have anybody in Congress if the standard was competence. That's nice. That must make you popular. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, if, if, if I, I don't say this as, as advice at all, uh, cause, uh, but, uh, I mean, I would, uh, if I were in the Congress, which, you know, may, may America be preserved from such a fate, um, I'd vote yes to impeach him because he's, he's not equal to the role. Uh, uh, but I think the, the, the major point, which is that he is symptomatic, symptomatic rather than causative of the Biden regime's uh, consistent dereliction of duty on the border is probably true. Should he be removed? Yes. Uh, is he the source of the issue? Probably not. Uh, he's a functionary and he is executing the will of the cohort um, that actually controls this White House, which unfortunately, you know, only occasionally includes the president himself, who is clearly not mentally competent to, uh, you know, exercise ordinary governance uh, in times. But this is happening, and 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 look, if we, um, uh, if if it helps generate or further the necessary conversation that we must have uh, on our border, uh, on the openness of it, on the federal government's failure to secure it, uh, then. Let the fireworks commence and let this impeachment proceed, because uh, you know we're we're running out of options uh, in this case. You know, pending President Biden doing his job. Yeah, well, I think you said it perfectly. They're all guilty. Maybe they should all be impeached. But um, I want to keep this topic going. I know we're speaking a little bit about the you know speaking of Mallorca's and speaking of the federal government's negligence negligence when it comes to the border. Uh, and not just that, but Texas's refusal to submit to it, which we talked about extensively. I asked you about extensively last episode. So if our listeners haven't listened to that, then you should definitely go back and listen to the last episode because we talk about this in depth. Um, but I want to jump into some updates that are Texas specific, Josh, um, and they about Texas's fight with D.C., um, you talked a little bit about this in the live stream you did yesterday with our CEO, Greg. So mm -hmm. can you update our listeners, too, on that, on, you know, what recent actions other states have taken to help Texas? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's been interesting about about uh, the past the past week plus at this point. So right now, as we record this, we're recording this on Wednesday, January 31st. And uh, the, I say that by way of applying subtle pressure to get this posted uh, today if we can. Uh, but uh, it, it was it was exactly one week ago that Governor Abbott released his letter saying that the okay. federal government has broken the compact between the states and the federal government, which is which is uh, groundbreaking. Uh, the Biden regime has been very slow at reacting to very major events across the past two weeks, and it's quite curious. Um, uh, although it's external to the subject matter of this podcast, we have to note that uh, you know over the weekend, uh, God rest him, but three American soldiers were killed by the Iranians, not by Iranian proxies. They were actually killed by the Iranians uh, in in uh, in Jordan, um, outside the Al Tanf base at Tower Twenty Two, and uh, you, know, you know that. Plus, uh, the Texas rejection of 
of uh, the illegitimately claimed federal authority at the border, uh, I think in any ordinary presidency would have resulted in action on both fronts by now. You would have seen the administration do something about Texas, and you would have seen the administration do something about the Iranians too. And it's very curious that none of that has happened yet. Um, now it's possible that as we speak, something is happening in the Middle East, and so events may lap us. Uh, but uh, but you know as as we record, nothing has happened, and it's very odd. And I will tell you, I'll set aside. I I, I think I think on the Middle Eastern front. Um, uh, my guess is that is that the uh, is that the Biden team's um, affinity, strange affinity for Iran, which they inherited from the Obama team, but I repeat myself that the same people uh, is probably hindering effective action in defense of U.S. interests. Uh, in Texas, m- my suspicion is that they're not really sure what to do at this point. I think if it were not an election year, I think that if his numbers were not tanking, it would probably be a lot more straightforward. Like they would have, they, they would have accepted the crisis at some point. Right now, I think they're trying to decide between a variety of options. Some of them communicative, some of them substantive. And my guess is that they haven't figured out uh, what the right answer is yet. You know, uh, we, we did talk about this on the live stream uh, with Greg Sindelar and Ammon Blair, but uh, but it's worth repeating. I think there's two there, there's two major options before them. One is to uh, federalize the Texas National Guard, mm-hmm. uh, take that tool away out of Operation Lone Star. Uh, and the other, which is what I think they'll actually do, is to embark on prosecutions of individual Texas state troopers and Texas guardsmen, uh, likely, but not necessarily under 18 U.S. Code 242, uh, which essentially um, renders you liable to prosecution if you violate the 14th Amendment rights of, of, of any person, not any citizen, any person. And uh, that's, you know, if I had to guess, I would say that that's what uh, that's what the Biden regime will probably do. Um, I don't think they'll go after top level officials. I think they'll go after low level personnel to try and demoralize the force, to try and provide a disincentive for individuals uh, to um, go after folks. It's possible that they're doing so deliberately and they're waiting for Texas Senate Bill 4 to come into effect. For our listeners who don't know, Senate Bill 4 was passed in the special session of the 88th regular legislature last year, late last year, and it enables uh, uh, Texas uh, state agents, Texas state troopers and so on, uh, to actually apprehend illegal entrants into Texas and um, go through kind of a quasi self-deportation process. So they'll, they'll take them to a port of entry and then command them to go across. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting side note, the Texas Constitution of 1876, under which we still live, actually prohibits exile. Uh, so so, so you, you essentially have to invite somebody to self-deport. Um, uh, you can't force them across the border, but but if they choose to stay, they're gonna see the inside of a state of a state jail cell instead of you know mm-hmm. living free and happy in wherever it is, Reynosa or, or wherever they came from. Uh, so, so it, it's possible that the feds are waiting for that to go into effect and will then launch prosecutions as soon as Texas state officials act on that law on Senate Bill 4. But we just don't know. Uh, there's almost an eerie quiet. And in the meantime, uh, you know, those of us who uh, support what Texas is doing, which absolutely includes us, uh, need to be thinking through next steps um uh, and anticipating what the feds are going to do uh because ultimately you know as you and i talked about in the last hard country episode it is existentially impossible for the progressive movement and the project that it's advanced over the past century to fail to respond to this if texas wins this is how important this is if texas wins the project is over if texas wins we get to live we get to live free under the constitutional order in which we were intended to live uh, and those are the stakes. And I think they know that very well. 
Well, Josh, what do you make of potential federal solutions? Uh, like, what do you think about the Senate's proposed immigration plan? I haven't read the Senate's proposed immigration plan, and and again at this recording, uh, nobody nobody's read it. I mean, nobody except for a variety of senators who all you know go talk off the record to press. Have, have, have you seen a, a copy of it, Melissa? I haven't. I need to look. Yeah, for no, it. no, I haven't either. Um, uh, well, it, it, yesterday it didn't exist. This morning it didn't exist. It may it may now again for all we know. Uh, this is the uh, this is the the pitfall of kind of asynchronous communication. Um, uh, but what we have heard of the proposed Senate bill sounds—I mean, it sounds terrible. Uh, you know, they—they're—they're they're proposing tolerating uh, about um, the, the, so 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 what the bill does is it purports to give the president shutdown authority. They're calling it over the border. I mean, the president has shutdown right. authority right now. I mean, he could he could do it right now if he wish. Yeah, exactly. Him. But he chooses not to. And the reason he chooses not to is, you know, all the reasons that we've talked about. But what this bill supposedly does is uh, allows in about 1.3 million illegals annually, which, by the way, is five times the rate of illegal entry that the Obama administration said constituted a border crisis. Think about that. Uh, so I guess the system has quintupled in capacity since then, or Americans' tolerance That's insane. has. Well, I mean, it makes no sense. Uh, but allows that number in. Uh, before triggering presidential shutdown authority, uh, which is, you know, I mean, if, if that is true, that's an if, because again, no one's actually read the thing. Uh, but if that's true, that ought to be completely unacceptable uh, to, to any of us. The number of allowed illegalities ought to be zero. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that, that, that's the least that can be, that, that ought to be demanded. There's so much work uh, that, that could be done in terms of adjudicating who gets into the United States and on what grounds and what the labor force needs are and, you know, what you do for humanitarian uh, entry and so on. And all those are such important questions that need to be adjudicated, but not one of them can be adjudicated in law and policy until you get border security. Border security makes it possible to do all those other things. Everybody knows this, Democrat, Republican, left, right. But Washington, D.C. and the combine that operates Washington, D.C. never wants to deliver just border security to get to those other questions. Instead, they want to adjudicate those other questions first and or deliver partial border security only. And we have to ask ourselves why that is. There's a reason for it. Why is that? It's like you said, it's incredible to see the proportion of how the border crisis has continued growing and growing. And I have to say, regarding this proposed immigration plan, I've really enjoyed seeing the reactions of a lot of people on both sides. Um, yeah. I know, you know, President Trump uh, recently called it a horrific bill. Um, he said that it's a way of putting the border disaster onto the shoulders of the Republicans. Uh, he said the Democrats broke the border. They should fix it. And he also said, like, as a leader of our party, there is zero chance I will support the horrible open borders betrayal of America. So I'm curious, yeah. you know, to, to get a, a couple more of your thoughts, because like you said, I know we know that the Biden administration does not want to secure the border because they could have and they haven't. Um, right. I think that what they want is this bipartisan support for a Senate bill that they know will be dead in the House and that will either way not be enforced anyway. So do you think that this is their strategy of trying to keep the border open? and have a way that they can blame the House GOP for it? 
Well, I mean, this is a mind reading exercise at this point, so take it uh, take it as such. Um, uh, I think I think the regime, I think the Biden regime, uh, knows that it needs to be seen doing something about the border. I think I think that's absolutely clear. And uh, what they have been been doing clearly isn't working. Uh, mm-hmm. And so for them, I mean, look at again, look at the narrative that that uh, has has gone out from regime media. I keep quoting the New York Times, right? On the front page of the New York Times today is this really it's it's a jaw dropping story about how. Uh, uh, President Biden has been unable to secure the border, partly because of chaos in Mexico, but also because Republicans, I think the word they use is obstinate, have been so obstinate that uh, they're just they're just fixated on only border security. And they won't let Joe Biden address all the other things that he wants to in terms of visas and asylum reform and things like that, uh, which is which is complete nonsense. I mean, none of that's actually true. Um, uh, but that that's why that's why they're pushing this. And I mean, look, uh, you know, for, for them. I think this is a flawed analysis uh, from a standpoint of their own interests, but so be it, not the first time. For them, they probably see it as a win-win. If they get the legislation, then the border is basically open and they perceive that as a win. That's what they want. If they don't get the legislation, which they won't, it won't get through this house, uh, then uh, they get to claim that, hey, we tried, we've been doing our best, you know, vote for us and we'll get, we'll get a, you know, we'll get a bad bill done in January, 2025. Um, so it's, it's, it's too clever by half. Uh, I don't think people believe it. Uh, when you look at the number one issue on Americans' minds, increasingly it's immigration and border, immigration and border, immigration and border. And, uh, it's not just a conservative issue. It's not just a Republican issue. It's not just a Texas issue. It's everywhere. And, uh, you know, liberal Democrats running places like, uh, New York city and Chicago are beside themselves, uh, over it. And um, uh, I think I think this is one the administration is 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 going to lose. It'll be a chosen loss on their part. Exactly, a choice. A choice. Well, thank you, Josh. Do you have any closing thoughts? I think we're almost out of time, but thank you again for making the time uh, to join remotely. I know we have a lot that we're going to be needing to discuss in the next couple of weeks, so we'll be trying to do an episode, if not every two weeks, like we've been doing, then definitely every week. But yeah. do you have any closing thoughts for this episode? No, uh, always appreciate your partnership, uh, Melissa, and thank you for, for for joining us. And we're gonna be we're gonna be hot on this topic as long as it takes because uh, the stakes are everything. Well, thank you, Josh, and thank you to all of our listeners. We will be back with more next week. See you next time. <laughs>